This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Hello, and welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. My name is Deborah Fitzgerald, and I am editor of the Peninsula Pulse. On August 11, the Marion County Sheriff's Office raided the newspaper office of the Marion County Record and the home of the paper's publisher, seizing computers, cell phones, and other materials. This is a county that has about 11,700 people, so it's roughly one-third the size of Door County's full-time population. The sheriff's office, according to CNN reporting, viewed the unsealed search warrant affidavits and said it was investigating identity theft and unlawful acts concerning computers. In redacted affidavits, Marion Police Chief Gideon Cody suggested the raids were based on the belief that a reporter had unlawfully obtained the driving records of a local restaurant owner before the paper published a story about her. The restaurant owner had previously thrown the reporter and publisher out of her cafe during a visit from a political figure, so it gets a little messy there. Less than a week after the raids, Marion County prosecutors withdrew the search warrants and asked authorities to return the seized material, saying there was insufficient evidence to have allowed the search warrant, basically. The raid is drawn widespread condemnation from news organizations and press freedom advocates. And to help us talk about this in the context of journalism, I have two people here that I've been wanting to have on the podcast for a long time, and we finally made it happen. The first is Michael Killenberg, and he is a Jacksonport resident. He is a former professor of journalism and founding director of the Department of Journalism and Media Studies at University of South Florida, St. Petersburg. And he kind of grew up in the newspaper world because his dad was a top news executive of the St. Louis Globe Democrat. So welcome, Mike. Glad to be here, Deborah. And then also in the podcast, so we're kind of cozy in here today, is Rob Anderson. He's also a Jacksonport resident and former professor in the Department of Communications at St. Louis University. He studies dialogue in everyday interpersonal communication, public media, intellectual history and communication ethics, and is the author of several books. He's a long-term collaborator with Mike which led to a book that they just published this year, and it's called Democracy's News, a primer on journalism for citizens who care about democracy. Welcome, Rob. Hi, thank you. So that was initially the reason for inviting them on the podcast, and then the Marion County raid happened. Mike, what, what was your reaction to that? Shocked to a degree, but not really so, because... These kinds of proceedings have happened a, a number of times to news organizations, and it's more likely to be happening these days when people simply don't have as much regard for journalism and they think it's mistrustful, that it's fake news and all of that. But what they did, according to what I've learned, is in violation of the First Amendment. Mm. And they did so. I mean, there is a lawsuit probably pending here. I know that the newspaper had not decided whether or not it was going to be pressing charges, but... Whether whether they uh, press charges and try to right this wrong, it still is going to put them in an uncomfortable position. Mm. They now know that the police are willing to walk right in the front door of the newspaper, their homes and do a, a search that probably would reveal certain sensitive information, such as sources that they've used. And I thought, though, this kind of no-notice, it's called a no-notice, no-knock mm. warrant, I thought this was dead in the water, at least in most jurisdictions, because of a piece of legislation dating back to 1980. It's called the Privacy Protection Act. In that a piece of legislation, it was established that if you, whether you're a state police, your county sheriff, federal agents, 
if you don't make a case to justify the extreme act of entering a newsroom, uh, you can't do it. Hmm. And this law came about, it started, believe it or not, it started in 1973, actually 1971, when local police raided the Stanford Daily newspaper. It's a student newspaper at, the, at Stanford University. And uh, they were looking for students who had participated in a sit-down. They were occupying the president's office. And the police came in to rouse them. <laughs> the students rousted the police, and several got injured. It's not a laughing matter about that. But the editor of the paper, guided by and assisted by pro bono sources, took this case all the way to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court more or less sided with the police. They said the conditions of a search warrant, a no-knock search warrant, probable cause, uh, fear that evidence might be destroyed, and so on. Those standards meant the police did what was right. So the First Amendment didn't apply. Even though here you have police walking into a newspaper office and searching everywhere, high and low. They said that didn't count. But that so outraged many people on the left, on the right, that Governor Carter asked his vice president, Walter Mondale, to lead a bipartisan effort to get this law passed. And that's when it happened. So since 1980, we've had this protection against that kind of behavior. Maybe people have forget these things or never knew them in the first place, but the police should have known better than to just knock on the door and walk into somebody's home and office. And certainly the judge, correct? Who wrote the warrant, or is it up to the sheriff's office to understand the law? Well, my suspicion is that the judge really doesn't know much about the First Amendment because judges are asked to do with everything from divorce decrees to um, shoplifting and so on. Very few are experts on the First Amendment. I would guess if you could get the judge to be honest about it, he didn't even know what the Privacy Protection Act of 1980 was all about. Hmm. Interesting. So now one thing I just want to circle back to what you said at the beginning is, you know, you thought that something like this could never happen and that it shows a certain level of, I mean, they are emboldened by something, the sheriff's office, into thinking that they can do this for a newspaper. And not only that, but kind of what stood out to me in reading the reports about this is that, you know, the granted the national media organizations that are parachuting into this small community don't understand, you know, exactly how that community functions or their, I guess, their position on the newspaper or their perspective on that newspaper. But it sounded to me like there were several, there's at least a faction of that community that believes that the newspaper, when it's reporting hard news, is actually smearing residents and citizens and business owners. And that, you know, is definitely a situation that many of us in journalism can relate to. But it also relates to your book when you're talking about, you know, citizens who care about democracy need a better education on how journalism works, how it protects individual and societal rights how it informs citizens of facts impacting us locally, nationally, and globally. So it's that part of it seems to be very prescient here in this particular situation, that we've arrived at a point in our society where, where people don't really know what journalists do. And so it seems to me that, because I've read your book, that that's why you wrote this primer on you know what people need to know about journalism but why don't you tell us you know what this book contains and how it is kind of a call to action for anybody who cares about democracy one of the um, and this is rob oh this is rob yes, yes. one of the issues that it, it didn't sneak up on anyone but it's it's hard to miss uh, if you're looking at the relationship between journalism and its readers, its viewers, and so forth. One of the things that is relatively new, although maybe at least five decades old, is that journalism has become a target mm. for blame. 
of, of many of, of society's ills and uh, many of political issues that, that rise up. And therefore, well, you, you go back to the, the Goldwater era, like what, five or six decades, six decades ago, and, and you find that there were people, I guess the bad word would be scheming or at least planning that a strategy would be, and Richard Nixon was involved in this too in, in various ways, that the idea would be if we can get the people of the United States to mistrust the media that is the most prominent, which at that time was newspapers probably in terms of influence, television rising. One of the issues is that if we can get these people to mistrust journalism, then our job is easier as political people who are against many of the, the reporting issues that are coming out. So journalism, journalism has become too easy a target, it seems to me anyway. And it's not a novelty. It's not a right. new thing. Exactly. It sounds like. And that's what was really kind of cool about this book to me was that you really ground journalism's role in history. So you go back to even the founding fathers, you know, of what newspapers actually, what kind of function they performed at that time. Mm -hmm. And though it seems recent that things have happened, this mistrust, this fake news, I mean, certainly there are new terms about it. But as you just pointed out, Rob, I mean, it goes back quite a number of generations. I mean, it's not like it just happened over the past 10 years, over the past, it, it definitely got worse. I'm here to say that I've spent my entire career in journalism, mm -hmm. but so the, your book outlines how journalism began and how it functioned and what it did for society and democracy, and then how that journalism is being weakened and undermined and what that does for society and democracy. And then the nuts and bolts of journalism, like the different types, who journalists are, and then models that could fix some of the issues with a heavy emphasis on community journalism, which I definitely want to get to. But the one thing that also stood out for me here is it's not just journalism that is responsible for upholding democracy and creating a vibrant republic. It's kind of like a three-legged stool. So you have citizenship and civic discourse mm -hmm. as the two other things. Can you describe how you're defining those terms? Journalism doesn't fit one single definition. And I think that's a good thing. And it's a good thing, too, that we have community newspapers because the so-called mainstream media doesn't have the resources, never did have the resources to cover local communities. And we can depend on newspapers and radio stations and TV stations to do that. But now, so many of them have gone under because they were for-profit, they couldn't make enough money, they were competing against internet, television, social media. So we have found so many communities without a reliable journalism outlet. We call these, they've been called, news deserts. And in news deserts, who knows what's gonna pop up, but it's not generally gonna be the truth or reporting that holds public officials accountable. Mm -hmm. And if I may, just, follow up on what Rob was saying, I dug up a, a nifty quote from the New York Times attorney named David McGraw, and he said, it's a very short half step from not believing the press to not believing in press freedom. Hmm. And I think that's where this is headed, that because people are not believing the press or think that it's enemy, think that it's against everybody not publishing the truth, well, then it's okay to raid those newspaper offices. It's okay to arrest a journalist on the job. And all of those things have been happening. And I think that in an environment where news deserts are now the norm, that is increasingly dangerous because they don't even see community news journalists. They don't even see community newspaper reporters. They don't have interaction. They don't understand you know, what it is that a community newspaper actually does. So that makes it even more dangerous. But certainly in the case of Marion, Kansas, they had a newspaper there, but still that ethos of distrust has permeated down to the smallest communities. Right. While we're still on this subject of journalism, I wanted to note, and Rob would second this most certainly, that community journalism is essential because it 
does have a mission quite different than mainstream media or international media or cable news. Can you define how you're describing community newspapers versus mainstream media? I think we all know what national media is, but can you define the distinction between those? Well, there, there are a lot of distinctions, and one of them is that community journalism is largely a labor of love. You don't get rich with community journalism. So when you go around and you think these people are lying to you or misleading you for some kind of nefarious purpose, some kind of political purpose, you're, you're, I'm afraid, knowing journalists as well as I do and working in journalism, that's just not true. They are doing hard work and they're sacrificing their time and spending hours in public service. And that's what I think community journalism is all about. It's about public service, public small p, getting out there and listening to people, not telling them what's the news, asking them what is bothering them, what's on their minds, what do they have dreams about at night. And uh, I think most community newspapers are attuned to that. They, they do that very well. And the problem is they just do not have the resources. Obviously, like in Marion County, they don't have the local support, at least not a wholehearted local support. And it makes the job much harder than it, I think that it's been in a long time. Mm, I can definitely attest to that. It takes the reporting of, well, first of all, to your point of being a labor of love, that is, that is certainly the, you know, uh, that is certainly the difference between working for a community newspaper, which I consider the Peninsula Pulse to be, even though we have 19 different municipalities and the county government and you know, it's a pretty broad area. It still is a community newspaper and that we try and we try and hold a mirror up to this community to show them, you know, what's there. Now, that metaphor, if you see flaws in that mirror, then it at least shows the community, are these flaws that you can live with? Or are these flaws that need to be corrected? Or do we even agree that these are flaws at all? So that kind of metaphor is important. However, when you show the flaws to people these days, then they think that you're undermining the best interests of the community, even with a community newspaper, when they know you have the heart and community interest. Right, right. One of the things I might add to what Mike said, and I am basically a journalism watcher. Mm. I am not a journalist myself. Mm -hmm. I haven't ever been one. But I have, uh, through Mike and uh, friends at St. Louis University and so forth, where, our, where journalism was a part of our curriculum in our department, I've learned enough to, I think, gather some issues together in my mind that make sense. And when you mentioned a while ago the idea of citizenship, mm -hmm. and in the context of journalism in a citizen situation, which you are, I, I imagine, and, and other people who are doing the same kinds of things that, that you've done. Journalism can't be seen by itself for partly the reason that I discussed a while ago. It has to be seen in the context of what it does for citizens, what it does for people. So an action rather than a thing. Yeah, and so citizenship is actionable journalism in a way because both of them depend on what's being done for people. Mm -hmm. One of the things that, that Mike and I decided to do, and you mentioned the, the three parts of the ideas of the book, mm -hmm. crisis in journalism. We also have a crisis in citizenship where people have somehow thought that if they themselves are going to profit by something, then that's an inherent good in society. And I'm not blaming individuals for believing that or seeing it. It's a hard life, right? And you've got kids and you've got bills to pay and so forth. It, it's hard to see beyond that sometimes. Mm -hmm. But we can see beyond that. It's very possible to see that a crisis in citizenship might be, not only do I not get enough news, but I don't think enough about what the news means. Mm. and tremendous implications, I think, for community journalism. Because if the purpose of journalism 
is to provide a kind of an outlook to the world, then that is tremendously important, especially at a local level, mm-hmm. where the people who are doing the journalism are themselves citizens mm-hmm. and need to be trusted as such. But you sometimes have to deliver the hard news, mm-hmm. too, for people who would like to think that they have special privileges or their situation is the only problematic one. Mm-hmm. And you, For instance, I can't imagine what it would be like to, to read letters to the editor and decide. Oh, that's fun, especially and, during an election campaign. Uh, I'll bet, I'll bet. And I've been guilty of haranguing you and some other people <laughs> with some of those letters in the past. So... I think we, had, we need to understand citizenship a little bit differently. And the idea, one of the ideas of the book is that citizenship often is thought of as an individual contribution mm-hmm. to society. Philanthropy and uh, volunteering and so forth are often individual efforts and contributions, which is just fine. On the other hand, there's a way in which citizenship has to be interpersonal as well, that people have to collaborate, that people have to see themselves as part of a whole that's larger than they are. And I know that there must be some difficulties in community journalism in convincing people of that, mm-hmm. maybe even to the point of view about the, the Marion, Kansas issue, that they're owed something. Mm-hmm. A person who, for instance, has a, uh, a stake in a restaurant, is a member of the community. The fact that j- journalists in that situation, small town journalists actually, have to discover whether or not her contributions were effective, good, or misunderstood, or misleading. Mm-hmm. And those are tough decisions to make at the local level that I suspect the New York Times doesn't worry about. No, so you are much. correct. <laughs> and and so, it, so th- there has to be an education in citizenship that has to kind of complement the whole notion of journalism, hmm. which is opening out the world for people, mm-hmm. but also opening out the world so that they can do something about it. Right. And that, of course, ties into the third leg, when journalism is effective and doing its job, when it's, when it's available, it helps citizens learn to communicate with one another better. They certainly don't do very well these days, more like screaming at each other and cursing. But then once they're armed with reliable facts, reality, and talk about it, they are then able to make decisions. And that's where the discourse is important because we are a republic, goes back to our founding, and it's meant that the people government govern, not a president, not a dictator, the people govern. Obviously, they have to relinquish some control to others, including journalists, to help them out along the way. But the ideal is that citizens get the news, and it's good news in the sense that it's not biased, it's not untruthful. Then they talk about it, debate it, openly with a concern about who they're talking to and with. And then we hope they get together and solve a problem, a community problem. And that's why we thought this theme was so important in terms of connecting those three essential elements of our democracy, of our republic. Mm -hmm. I love the metaphor that you use in the book about a newspaper being kind of like the town square of old where people would come together, they would do business, and they would have discussions. Those discussions would turn into some kind of action, draw more people in. And a newspaper kind of fulfilled that role. We no longer have that. The um, role of the town square is important, and that's what a newspaper can and should be, and we've seen good examples of that. But to remind people, newspapers back in the days of the revolution and the founding of the country were somewhat scurrilous, mm-hmm. but they certainly got us talking and thinking. And this again loops back. We have a First Amendment, not so much as to protect journalists, although it does, or to protect the owners of newspapers, although it does. It is there for the people. 
The First Amendment belongs to the people far more than it belongs to journalists. Even the freedom of the press clause belongs to the people. And that's the way the founders saw journalism. They weren't trying to make journalism protected so that it could lie. No, they wanted journalism protected so it could do its mission of getting information to citizens on which they can act. Mm-hmm. There were some less than illustrious beginnings for journalism with the yellow journalism period. And normally newspapers began because the owners of the newspapers wanted to push their particular opinion. Obviously, we have evolved way beyond you know that point or it, from that point. Well, if, if that was a negative, however... There was a positive to it, and that is that the country was founded on the assumption, shaky at times, stronger at other times, the assumption that people will talk with each other Mm -hmm. and argue with each other in this town square, metaphorical or not. But at the beginning, it was actually specifically Mm face-to-face. And that that out of these arguments would come better decisions and a more collaborative look at what it's like to be a citizen, taking control of your and their own life, future Mm. uh, possibilities and so forth. So there's one notion that we have in the book that talk is what actually formed the country. And sometimes the, the talk was written down and, and circulated from town to town and read oftentimes, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, maybe a full year in some cases after it was written, but it still generated talk. And so without talk, we don't have citizenship. Without citizenship, we don't have a journalism that matters. And one of the things that, that causes us to worry about the talk and the absence of thereof in the country is the idea that right now there seems to be a lockdown on interpersonal talk among and between people who disagree. Mm. It's almost like I don't talk to those people mm-hmm. over there while they're saying to themselves, we don't talk with this guy either. This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by Door County Medical Center. Are you looking for a job in Door County with excellent benefits, culture, and potential for advancement through tuition reimbursement programs? Door County Medical Center is hiring. For more than 75 years, Door County Medical Center has been the leader in health and wellness for Door and Kiwani counties. Their integrated medical center provides a wide range of specialties, including primary care, behavioral health, general surgery, the Women and Children's Center, the Door Orthopedic Center, the Door County Cancer Center, and more. To join the team, apply today at dcmedical.org slash careers. So the tribalism has definitely impeded the ability for people to talk. Do you think that people are, are no longer learning how to talk to each other because of social media? Good point. I ought to think about that a little bit more before I react, but I'll start. I mean, I, I'll wing it a, a little bit. I'm not sure it's entirely because of social media, but I I do know that social media has supplanted some of the news involvement Mm. of of people. Mm -hmm. That since we've entered an age of social media, fewer people are viewing print journalism as relevant in their lives. Subscription rates are often down if the newspapers survive at all in some cases. And so social media, is a, is a giant door that's open, but it's sometimes not open to the kinds of things that help a, a republic. Mm. Social media, too, is generally one-sided. It's not, it's not a, a good, it's not even a communication, as most people would define communication. It's people ranting and pushing an agenda or whatever it might be, and some with good intentions and all of that, but you need to have a conversation, not so much as this one-way bitching and complaining and attacking people. Right. So in that sense, social media has contributed to the divisiveness in this, in this country. And that is the reason why I asked the question, because I know that, I mean, it's a place for monologues and soliloquies and gaining followers, 
you know, and having an influence in that way versus mm-hmm. having a dialogue with people. And it also gives you handy emojis that you can <laughs> express to stand in for emotions. Mm-hmm. So then when you meet people face to face, they never say the things that they would say to you in quotes on social media. Mm-hmm. They would never say that to you face to face. And neither do they have an emoji that they can flash to you face to face that shows you or gives you context or insight into their emotional state of mind. So if people are mostly communicating on social media, then how do they learn to communicate? How do they learn to have this civic discourse that is one of the primary legs of the stool that we need? I just want to return to that social media question, we have to also remember that people posting on social media are not necessarily even real people. Oh, sure. There are, they, of course, there are all kinds of uh, scammers out there, uh, ideological scammers, who are trying to confuse us and trying to divide us. It's to their benefit. It's to perhaps their whole national agenda to do that. And people think that what they get on Social media, because there's a name attached to it, sometimes even a picture attached to it. Well, this is a real person talking to me. This is not some agent over in China trying to mess up our elections or make us hate each other. Right, which is a whole other podcast, Real Fake News, (laughs) you know, and how it's actually produced. But That would be a great one. In terms of, you know, in needing people, in needing all three legs of this stool to be sturdy enough to hold up this republic, one of the, you talk about in the book, how there are ways to self-correct what is happening or the direction that we seem to be leading in, that this disintegration of journalism, citizenship, and civic discourse does have some models that can help prop the stool up, that can help make it stronger. And one of those things that you talk about, I mean, one of the main things is community journalism. And this is really something that I'm very interested in because last night I just, we just kicked off a kind of community journalism program project with the League of Women Voters in Door County. And they have an observer corps. And that observer corps is now going to be enlisted to watch different municipalities that the league is interested, but also that the pulse simply does not have the people to be at. So that we're coming together in a collaborative project to see if this works, you know, to see if they can feed, we've come up with forms and, you know, they'll go to a meeting and they'll be observing for certain things and they'll be sending that to league leadership and then they will be writing things up and sending it to me and then, you know, we'll go from there. But Mm -hmm. that's the idea is to get as many people out there as possible you know, of different backgrounds, of various communities Mm -hmm. to watch. So that's the community journalism model that we're working on here. But let's talk about Uh, that. Does that fit in line with what you're considering in your book? I I think it is. Yes, uh, indeed. Very very much a part of this because out of that can come a a kind of a um, collaboration in which journalism becomes wider than it has been before. Mm-hmm. It's not just the reporting of news that happened to have happened yesterday. Right. It's not just that, but journalism can be one of the, I don't know, one of the basic benchmarks of cooperation within a community and can sponsor, in fact, some of that without completely selling itself to any of the positions that might be taken. Can you there. elaborate on that a little bit, the benchmark of cooperation? Yeah. Uh, well, I can. I can, And I, I think Mike probably has something to say about this as well. But, but some years ago, we wrote a book in the 90s uh, during the <laughs> era of public journalism uh, as, a, as a kind of a, a notion that was going to energize journalism. It, it kind of did that. It kind of didn't. It was, it was attacked by a, a number of, of uh, mainstream journalists. And then it kind of went underground for a while. And over the last five years, it's, 
it's made some remarkable progress, I think. What was the name of that book? Well, there's oh, the conversation, the conversation of, journalism. of journalism. Okay, 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 all right. Thank you very much. Sure. Uh, for, <laughs> for your inquiry there. There might be still a few copies stored away in some uh, dusty uh, warehouse okay, so somewhere. <laughs> well, no, actually, it's still in circulation for sure. It's, it's still okay. in circulation, and, and a number of people have been very kind in their reactions to it and okay. so forth. But the conversation of journalism basically was about this idea that you don't have to be in the old school definition objective Mm -hmm. in order to point out the problems in a society, in a town, in a town board, in a a local or a national issue, uh, such as rampant lying and, and difficult. A lot of journalists, if you noticed over the past few years, have tended to use the term lying Mm. which used to be verboten, mm-hmm. because it sounded like you were taking a position. Sure, you, politically you, a speaking. judgment. Yeah. Well, well, what you're describing, I think, in the project that you're, dis- you're mentioning, is the fact that journalism, viewed widely, is this opening out into the world of the kinds of information that is needed to make actual good decisions when you're collaborating with other people. Mm-hmm. as citizens. Right. What kind of makes that difficult is that we are also simultaneously in a culture of accusation and lying and attempts to put down other people so that now Thanksgiving is a difficult time of the year for people because Uncle Jim doesn't want to talk about your interests, their interests and so forth because he thinks you're too liberal. Sure. Or he thinks you're too conservative. And it has actually removed any, you know, objectivity used to be a thing. I have not, in my career, never really believed in objectivity because we're humans and, you know, we are automatically subjective. But fairness and, and accuracy are two things that absolutely can be achieved. However, in today's environment, if somebody knows what politics, who you vote for, mm-hmm. then they're automatically going to assume that you are biased to the point of not being able to even be fair. So that's how it's changed. Yeah. One of the positions of our, of our book is everyone is biased. Mm-hmm. It's, just, it's just that some of us are, are biased in one way, not biased in another way, perhaps, but we all have predispositions to decide. Sure. And journalism, as you have said, is biased toward finding the truth. Yeah. And yeah. Absolutely. listening to people, that's their, that's our bias. If we have one, I sort of jumped in here, but I commend <laughs> you for that project of enlisting the League of Women Voters. Mm-hmm. And we've worked with the League of Women Voters uh, in South Florida at the university in trying to and exactly what you're doing, letting them be the eyes and ears for us. They're very attuned to the community. Some people think, well, they're too liberal and so on, but they are good citizens. Now, in the end of the book, we try to end on a positive note, and we are showing models of news organizations that are nonprofit. They're streamlined, but, and they're definitely focused on community and public affairs reporting. But we have found that you need to involve people in journalism, and that's what you're doing. You're involving these folks in journalism. Not only are they going to help you identify important stories or stories you might otherwise miss, they are going to become your allies. And I think journalists in general need to open the doors, literally, to let the public in and seek volunteers. Every time you do that, I'll almost guarantee you, you're going to have people in the community who are much more aware of what the newspaper does, much more supportive of what the newspaper does, and they will spread the word on that as well. Well, those folks down there at the Peninsula Post are are pretty good. They're doing some good things over there. And by the way, a plug, you on several occasions have used the Freedom of Information Act to seek information from public officials. That's what the law is all about. It's not seeking information from private people about the behind-the-scenes maneuvering and decision-making that 
politicians and all kinds of government boards have been doing forever. Mm-hmm. It's a little harder for them to do it now, but you still, as you have done, have to get that freedom of information request out there. And that was over this, the Southern Door District superintendent and his firing. And uh, there's obviously a gag order on him. He's, he can't talk about it. But when you try to get background information by this request, it sounds like they had a plan and they're not going to let you have it. Now, I'm not saying these folks are bad or that they're hiding something. They may not be hiding any, anything other than trying to protect the reputation of the school district. But we the people need to know that, and that's what journalism is generally doing, representing we the people. So we should applaud any newspaper or news organization or person who uses tools available to get information to the public so they can talk and make decisions. This is all in the dark, and it shouldn't be. It absolutely shouldn't be. I'm glad you brought that up because it turned into, as you know, you probably can understand, once you get all of those documents and you realize you don't have any big aha, there is no, you know, there's... There's no smoking gun. There's nothing there that's going to tell you anything more than what you knew prior. However, it did turn into a story about the process of trying Mm -hmm. to get public information and the extent to which it can be not transparent to the district and to taxpayers and to voters so that they can decide on their own if they believe that this is how their district should function or if they want a more open policy, if they want a new superintendent who says, you know what, we're not going to close the doors unless we absolutely have to. And we're going to be more transparent about that when we do, we're not going to do it so frequently. Part of the message that you're giving by that approach is the message that someone is watching and someone cares deeply about issues around here, and that it's not necessarily a liberal versus conservative issue. It's it's a human issue. And the more that you do that kind of thing, you are sponsoring intelligence, I think. Hmm. And I think you, you and other people who are doing the kind of work that you do ought to be congratulated immensely even for a story in which at the bottom line, there's still something unclear about this. Because the message of your reporting is there is something unclear about this, which might get someone thinking. Right. And I do like the point also, uh, Mike, that you made about the, like drawing back the curtain a little bit on journalism. You both make this point in the book very, very clear. I mean, you even have personality types for journalists, which I really liked. I was like, yes, those are right on. That is exactly like every journalist, every reporter that I've ever worked with. So you really try to draw back that curtain in the book to show people who reporters are, how a newsroom functions, the different types of news that's out there, whether it's hard news or soft news, the different types of media. I mean, when, when you call this a primer, it absolutely is a primer for people who want to understand this thing called journalism that they can use as a vehicle to be better citizens, to have better civic discourse. So drawing back the curtain with community journalism models like the one that we're trying to work on does show them we're regular people mm-hmm. and we're doing this because we love doing it. In some way, having a newspaper office, it's good because people know where it is and how to knock on the door and walk in and tell people things. But it also keeps journalists and also the internet is this way from getting out and about and talking to people and visiting places. There's nothing better I would tell my students and getting out and seeing it firsthand because then, first of all, you will have a clarity, a better vision anyway, of what's going on. And you may see things that uh, you never would have thought of uh, talking about or uh, questioning until you're on the scene. And so that is a very good thing for journalism, that we are opening up opportunities to meet people 
and learn about them and question them as to what they expect of journalism in their communities. Right. And it used to be a lot easier to be able to do that. I miss those days of getting out of the office and behind the computer because we had more people. So when you have more people in the newsroom, then you can get out and really explore your beat. Mm -hmm. When you, what happens not only in news deserts, but when they slash and cut journalism jobs, that means the experts that we used to have, the beat experts on business, on education, on the environment, on all of these other topics, they're gone. So now everybody is a general assignment reporter and your beat is too large to walk, (laughs) you know? So that is another danger. Well, the news deserts is one problem. The drastically reduced resources is another problem. And um, people need to realize and maybe think of it in a different way than, oh, that, those, those nosy journalists down the street are, they're always asking questions and they're never content. Good for that. Good for a newspaper like that. But those kinds of opportunities are so essential to fulfilling the mission of journalism. And that is to get the people informed and, in, and involved. Right. Now, we could probably talk about this topic for another hour, but we're nearing an hour now. And I wanted to ask you if there is something that I didn't, that we didn't talk about that you really wanted to put out there. Well, I, I will add this in terms of the community's impressions of a newspaper or what they think the newspaper is or isn't. A community needs a newspaper like a good community needs a why, like it needs a library, like it needs a good clean water. But journalism protects all of those things. And to me, that is the ultimate community resource is a good newspaper. We need to bring them back where, they're, where they've disappeared, and that's happening to some degree, and applaud and support people who are fulfilling that mission like you guys are, are doing. So if you appreciate the local church, the, the Y, a civic group, please appreciate your newspaper. They're doing good for the entire community. Rob, did you have any parting words that you wanted to say? Oh, if, I'm putting you on I the could. spot here. <laughs> <laughs> but so, you are the communications guy. So. <laughs> are, are, but we all are. Yes. That's one of the things that Mike and I discovered early on about ourselves is that we were in different departments at the same university for about, what, 15 years? Oh, like okay. That. So yep. prior to your... Okay. Yes, we were colleagues for 15 years. Oh, about, wow. About 15 years. And he was in a, a mass communication, was that what it was called, in journalism mm-hmm. department. And I was in a what was called then speech communication. I don't know what they're calling it there now. Okay. But we realized that we're both doing communication work, but we... Our, our lives kind of and, and ideas went in slightly different ways. And we weren't all that aware of what the other one did very mm. much until we developed a friendship, a mm. face-to-face friendship. And our wives were pregnant at the same time at that moment. And it was one of these situations where we could start trading notions and ideas and discovered that, wow, there's tremendous overlap here, but I don't know some of the things in, in my case, I didn't know many of the things that he knew. It was a nice kind of discovery. Mm. And so I became a little more, um, I don't know, multi-interested <laughs> uh, in life uh, at that time. And so our, our collaboration has been a good thing, I hope, for both of us. Did you, how did you both end up in Jacksonport, in Door County? I'm to blame for that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I'm happy you did, but... I grew up in St. Louis. There were a number of people um, in that neighborhood who went north for the summer. And summers in St. Louis, and especially right now, are, are very bad, very humid, very hot. Anyway. I lived in Kansas City for a little while, for a you, couple of years. You know what so, it's like. Yes. <laughs> I never went outside. Yeah. I used to play tennis. And I never played tennis in the summer in Kansas City. <laughs> But we had neighbors, and they had a place in Door County, and my dad was friends, and mom and dad were friends with them. And he finally got us up there, and we 
took a quick sprint. This was, there was no Interstate 43 then. Dulane Road's going up there, and when my dad got out and saw Whitefish Bay, mm. that's the first one we saw. He said, oh, holy smokes. And then he started coming up that very summer, and I think I was 15 that summer. Mm. But over time, and uh, freedom to take some time off of summer, we finally realized, yeah, we'd love to have a home in Jacksonport and retire there at some point. And then he was, you know, we were good buddies and hanging around and playing basketball together and all that. And he said, well, maybe we'll come up there and check that place out. And lo and behold, <laughs> they did. And they bought, they actually bought, bought a house first, but then we ended up on the same street. On the same street, even. We're now on the same street. The oh, same my gosh. So you're neighbors. We're about Jackson. half we're, a mile apart. We are neighbors. <laughs> we are neighbors. Where were you, Rob, before you moved here? Well, we moved, We bought a place in Bailey's Harbor, actually, Oh. on County E. Oh, so you were in Dora County even before you... In 1994, 1993, we bought a place oh, and came so up been, here. Okay. Oh, I thought... Okay. All right. So, and where were you before you moved to Door County? Well, we lived in Edwardsville, Illinois, and gotcha. Glen Carbon, Illinois, okay. uh, which is just on the other side of St. Louis's the river. Okay. Uh, on the other side of the river. So you a Missouri kid, though. So he, he has the same roots. Okay. Basically, I was born in Kansas City. Oh, got it. I was born in St. Louis. Yeah. Great barbecue. Well, yeah, yeah, <laughs> but but I uh, I learned through our friendship that that Mike late in the spring would take a box, a cardboard box, and he'd start throwing into the box all the books he didn't have time to read uh, <laughs> in teaching. And I thought, wow, that's the life. I, <laughs> I've been, silly me, I've been teaching in the summers because I thought I needed that money. Hmm. And so Mike and one other friend uh, said, just don't teach one summer and You'll, you won't miss that money two years down the road, hmm. but you'll be, be rejuvenated when you come back in the fall. Yeah, I can't And imagine. so it took, it felt like a hit to make that decision not to work in the summer. But then I thought, kept thinking, that cardboard box and throwing books in hmm. there that you're, you're waiting for summer to go to Door County, which at that when I first heard the box thing, you know, I thought... Where is that? And can it be that really good? Because they were <laughs> vacationing up here. Okay. Okay. So, so they, so you definitely showed him, but you were hooked as well as most people are when they come up here and see it for the first time. That's true. So, that's yeah. true. Well, we definitely benefit from having you here. And I really enjoyed your book. Thank Again, you. it's Democracy's News, a primer on journalism for citizens who care about democracy. And I know we have a lot of those up here. So you can buy it on Amazon. And thank you for writing it. And thank you for talking with me on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Dora County Pulse podcast. I'm Deborah Fitzgerald. And until next time. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com slash shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.